Okay, so we're in Acts chapter 11, and we're starting from verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. And this they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Thank you very much, Charlotte. Good morning, everybody. Uh, yesterday, uh, Emma and Lucy and I went to the cinema. And uh, after sort of deliberating between Barbie and uh, Little Mermaid, uh, we uh, went for Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part 1. And it delivered exactly what you would expect. An improbable plot about saving humanity from a deadly weapon involving an impossibly young-looking Tom Cruise, uh, fighting on the roof of trains, motorcycling off cliffs, and generally being very cool indeed. Good news is, I think the part one hints at a sequel, uh, which is excellent, because it's not a bad way of spending a wet Saturday afternoon. Well, I mention that because as we turn to the book of Acts for our final time in this short series, we're going to be thinking this morning about our mission as a church. What is the mission of the church and how do we do it? There are, in fact, two opposing and competing ways of answering that question. On the one hand, some people would actually say, that the question itself is wrong. The church doesn't have a mission at all. That is, if you understand church, you understand that it's not the means to an end. It is the end. Through the gospel, as Nathan has already reminded us, God is creating a new family seen in the local church. And so to talk about the church as a mere tool for evangelism is to devalue the church. This is the worshipping community of God's people. It is the end goal of everything God is doing. It does not need a mission. It is the result of mission. On the other hand, there are those who say, no, the church exists because it has 
a task to do in the last days. Jesus commissioned his disciples to be witnesses to him to the ends of the earth. And so the church is where those disciples get built up and prepared and sent out into all the world. The church exists for mission. Well, I wonder which of those two you would choose if you had to. Church doesn't need a mission because it's the result of mission. The church has a mission. That's why it exists, two opposing views. Well, of course, like Winnie the Pooh, when he was asked to choose between honey or condensed milk, you cannot choose one over the other, can you? The answer has to be both, doesn't it? To choose between church as the result of the mission or church as the means to mission devalues both the church and the mission. And so, in fact, the Bible gives us a third way, which is to hold both of those values together, to see that both are dependent on each other. It is through the church being the church that the mission of God is accomplished. And it's through the church being on mission that it becomes the church God wants it to be. And so we need to grasp that it does one because it is the other. God's church is, in fact, God's people on mission. That is what we are. And if we lose that focus, that sense of priority and urgency about our mission, we actually become something less than God wants us to be. But that then leads to a second question. Where the rubber really hits the road for each one of us. How are we involved in the mission? And is the mission of the church what your life and my life is going to be about? Well, that's what we're going to think about then as we turn to Acts 11, uh, which is really the story of the birth of a brand new church, the church in Antioch. We're going to look at it under the three headings you'll see on the sheet. And this is going to give us an understanding for what God is doing in the world. God's power gathers his people for gospel partnership. God's power gathers his people for gospel partnership. Well, let's look at God's power then, firstly, in 19 to 21. Because the first thing that we see is that it is always God who is driving the mission of Jesus forwards. Look again at 19 and 20. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Now, at this point in the book of Acts, it's not a surprise to see the message of Jesus going out to Gentiles as well as Jews. This was always implied when Jesus gave the commission to his disciples in chapter 1 to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. It is also what chapter 10 has all been about. And if you just glance back to verse 18 of chapter 11, you'll see that Luke ends the previous section with the acknowledgement by the leaders of the church in Jerusalem that God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Well, given the clarity of that conclusion, we might have expected the next scene to involve those leaders sitting down and having a planning meeting and working out the strategy to reach the Gentiles. But that is not what's happening. We don't read in verse 9 of people being sent, do we? Look at verse 19 again. Those who've been scattered by the persecution 
in connection with Stephen, spoke the word about Jesus. Now, this is a reference back to the brutal killing of Stephen at the end of chapter 7, the first disciple to lose his life for the mission of Jesus. And the persecution that then followed that, which broke out, Luke tells us in chapter 8, against the whole church in Jerusalem, and the resultant fleeing from that persecution through Judea and Samaria, and now towards the end of the earth. And if you just look at the map, you can see how it works. Luke picks up the story of the Christian dispersion, which flings Christians northwards to Cyprus, the third largest island in the Mediterranean, Phoenicia on the coast, and then Antioch, the capital of the Roman province of Syria. And that's where Luke focuses his time for a little while. Now, the two things to notice here, then, two things to hold together. Firstly, the good news of Jesus is spread by ordinary means. Unlike the rather unusual story of the uh, Ethiopian eunuch and Philip in chapter 8, the Christians here are not named. We don't hear any heroic stories or amazing conversions or conversations. There's no one moving on, uh, fighting on moving trains or driving motorbikes off cliffs either. It's all very ordinary. Look at the words that Luke uses to describe what they're doing. At verse 19, they're telling people the message of Jesus. At verse 20, they are speaking the good news of Jesus. So there's no sort of sense of a, a great kind of public preacher, uh, trained orators. These are just ordinary men and women, boys and girls, who as they go, speak the word of Jesus to the people they meet. On the other hand, Luke leaves us in no doubt that it's God who is driving the mission forward. It is God who is sovereignly acting to force the believers out of Jerusalem in fulfillment of Jesus' commission. Jesus told them, didn't he, in chapter 1 to go, but so far they haven't really gone. It is the persecution that drives them out, fans them out to start infiltrating the Roman world much quicker than they could have done in a time of peace. It is God empowering the mission. And this is something you see again and again in the book of Acts. Remember the book opened, we saw a couple of weeks ago, with Luke telling us what Jesus began to do in his ministry in the gospel. Now he continues to do through the sending of the Spirit. The action is always triggered by Jesus from heaven. It is Jesus who is masterminding the mission. It is his plan, his gospel, his power. And so if we hold those two things together, I think that should be a huge encouragement to us as we step out of our hobbit hole, as we step over that pain line and actually do the very ordinary but quite difficult thing of speaking the word about Jesus, we know that God has already gone ahead of us. He is the great evangelist. The very reason he has extended the last days, as we saw last week, was to give us the spirit and to give us time because he wants to save people much more than we do. He wants to bring people in his kingdom. God is at work in the world. See, we may wish, as I think I said in the first week, that we lived in an easier time, a time when people kind of knew the Bible a bit better. We may wish that the soil was 
a bit softer. That this building was easy to fill with believers. We might wish there was just a little bit less hostility, at least in the public sphere. But we need to remember that God has chosen this as a time of salvation. And so not everyone will reject the message of the gospel. Not everyone we speak to will be hostile. The fact is that many people in our society have not rejected the gospel at all because they've not even heard it. And so we need to keep those two things together, don't we? That the gospel goes out by ordinary means as we speak the word to others, but God is going ahead of us. Uh, Richard Begonen is the man who designed the word one-to-one Bible reading tool that Flick mentioned last week. And recently on a podcast, I heard him say something quite striking. He said, whenever he asks people to read the Bible with him, he's often amazed at how many people say yes, even when he expects them to say no. And he puts this down, not to the way he asks, but to God's prior work in their lives. He says this, he says, I have a clear conviction that the Lord is very, very active in the circle of your relationships. God is very active even before you ask people the question. I wonder if that changes the way we feel about those kind of conversations. So here then is that classic biblical combination of the sovereignty of God and human responsibility working hand in hand together. Look at verse 21. The Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Now that phrase in verse 21, turn to the Lord, is actually a powerful metaphor for what God is doing as the gospel goes out into people's lives and therefore what we should be aiming at as we speak the gospel. To turn to the Lord is a way of talking about repentance and faith, isn't it? turning 180 degrees away from self and sin and idolatry, putting that behind you through the forgiveness of sins that Jesus has achieved on the cross, and now aligning yourself with Jesus as Lord. It's an easy expression just to skim over, but it's worth pausing about, isn't it? Because it's quite a, a powerful idea that we're asking people to change, we're asking people to make that turn, start a whole new life, in relationship with Jesus. Well, so far, so good then. Under the sovereign hand of God, disciples have been dispersed into unreached regions. They've done the very ordinary thing of speaking to people about Jesus. God has brought people to repentance and faith. It's been a spontaneous, unplanned, organic, grassroots, missionary movement driven by the Lord himself. But what now? What happens when people turn to the Lord? What happens when people receive the message of Jesus and meet Jesus in his word? Well, are they just left, scattered individuals in their communities? No. It's very important that we see the story continues. Always in the Bible, when people meet Jesus, they want to meet with Jesus' people. And so secondly, God's power gathers his people. And this is the longest point of the sermon. We're going to spend the bulk of our time on this second point. God gathers his people. Look with me at verse 22. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. 
When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all of their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Now this is not, as some commentators suggest, the, the apostles back in Jerusalem sort of sending the Ofsted inspector up north to, to check on what's going on and keep it under the, their control. Now, it's actually at the beginning of a beautiful gospel partnership that we're going to see more of in a few moments. It's an example, I think, of a kingdom-mindedness on the part of the apostles that their antennas are out for the work of the gospel in different parts of the world. And as soon as they hear about it, they, they want to help it. They want it to flourish. Now, what do they need for that work to flourish? Well, they need Barnabas to go. And I've got shelves full of books on church leadership and church growth, but I think there are three things we can learn from these few sentences that knocks the spots off all of them. What does this church need to flourish? Firstly, just if you're making notes, there are three things we're going to talk about during this section. First thing this little church needs is to understand itself. It needs a self-consciousness of its identity as an authentic, living, local church. That's the first thing it needs. It needs to understand itself. I say that because if you look at this section again, you may easily miss an important little word at the beginning and end of the section. It's the word church. So in verse 22, Luke refers to the church in Jerusalem. And this is not a surprise because... He's already shown us that church back in chapter 2, which we studied not too long ago in a different series. You may remember that the church meeting together, brought together in Jerusalem, studying the word, devoted to the apostles' teaching, breaking of bread and the fellowship, and prayer. It's a church. It's recognizable as such. But then almost casually, he comes to the end of describing the early missionary endeavor in Antioch, and he throws in the word church to describe it. And that ought to make us take notice. How come in verse 21, there was just a bunch of believers, but by verse 26, there is this entity or organization or institution, there is something that can now be described as a church. What do you think has happened between verse 22 and verse 26? What makes a church a church? Just kind of think about it. What would you say? Have they gone out and purchased a building? Is that what makes the church a church? Well, of course not. Have they put a sign outside someone's front door? This is, you know, St. Blobs in Antioch or whatever it is. Uh, have they bought a lectern and, and a stack of Bibles and a couple of guitars? Is that what makes a church or a website or something like that? Or more seriously, have they been authorized by the apostles in Jerusalem, he said, yes, now you can call yourself a church. Well, to answer those questions, obviously we need to understand what a church is. I think this is as good a place as any to see it. The essence of church is stunningly simple. Stunningly simple. But it's, it's got an accretion of sort of stuff laid onto it over history, which we need to kind of scrape off. Now, the essence of church is, is just a gathering 
a congregation, a group of people who meet together physically in one place. That is all a church is. There's even a secular version of church. In Acts 19, the word ecclesia, the word church, is used to describe a riot in the town of Ephesus. It's a church. It's a gathering of rioters. This afternoon at one o'clock, a, a few thousand people are going to gather together at Central Court in Wimbledon. And there is a tennis church. It's a gathering of people who gather for a particular reason. And so here is a gathering of believers, those, remember, from verse 21, who have turned to the Lord. Or verse 26, they've been brought to the Lord. And so a church is just a gathering of Christians who meet together. As people meet Jesus in his word, they want to meet with Jesus' people. Now, why does that matter? Why is it so important that the church understands itself i mean after all don't people gather for all sorts of reasons and common interest to watch a game of tennis to go to a music festival to play board games to riot in ephesians uh, acts 19 and during covid when we were watching the live stream in our pjs on the sofa what wasn't that church well, we could happily spend a lot of time on this, but just two brief steps we'll have to do, a look back and a look ahead. Firstly, if we look back at the Bible story, we'll see that actually this is what the whole Bible storyline has been leading to. See, right back at the beginning, God formed a church in creation, the first man and woman, a little gathering in his presence, in his place. After that little church fell apart, God restated his purposes for the world. He gave a promise to Abraham that lots of people were going to be gathered into the land of blessing. And so the entire story of the Old Testament and the history of Israel follows this theme of the scattering and gathering as God works to establish his kingdom and fulfill his creation purposes. But if you know the Bible, you'll know that the Old Testament ends with that promise unfulfilled. The Old Testament actually ends, as we saw in the book of Malachi a few weeks ago, with the people still scattered under judgment in exile. And so the work of Jesus in his death and resurrection is finally to gather God's people to himself. That's why Jesus died on the cross, to open the door to the kingdom of heaven and to gather people to himself in a new relationship and then to send them out, spirit-filled, to speak the word to the ends of the earth. That's the look back. Then if we look ahead to the end of the story, we'll see that the Bible actually ends with a gathering. In the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, we see a vision of the end, which consists of the entirety of God's people physically gathered. Yes, physically gathered around the throne of Christ. That's how the story ends. People from every nation under heaven gathered in one place, around Christ. And so with that beginning and end in mind, you can see that the whole Bible really is leading to this point. Why is it so important that Christians meet together? Because the gathering of believers is the one place on earth where we actually see a glimpse, an expression, a foretaste of the final gathering that God is bringing about at the end. That's why church matters. Every church, from two people 
to 20,000 people anticipates visibly now the final gathering around the throne of Christ on the last day. And so the concept of church is stunningly simple. The trick is really believing it, isn't it? Really believing that this gathering actually matters. That as the book that Nathan mentioned puts it, it is actually unmissable for the Christian. I had a flick through that book yesterday and uh, it does look like it's going to be very helpful and they explore a number of reasons why we might miss church. Uh, some reasons are, are, are good reasons, some not good, but some reasons we have to kind of actually grapple with. That's why they wrote the book. There are health reasons, there are reasons of busyness and conflicting priorities, loss of confidence in social settings due to mental health or simply the belief, the mistaken belief that church doesn't need you. And for all these reasons, they say that the one thing we need to understand if we miss church, the most helpful thing we can do is to keep hold of the conviction about what church is. Not what church can do for you, but what church actually is, what we're part of. That it is the one point on earth that reflects the reality of God's gathered people around the throne of Christ our Saviour. It might not look anything special, but it actually is the one place on the planet where you get to see something that is bigger than any other part of life and something that will last into eternity. And so the point of that book is that however hard it may be, it is worth fighting those battles and not missing being here. And that, of course, is why Christians will always invest their time, their talents, and their treasure firstly in the local church. See, there are lots of good things we could do, as Jerry mentioned on that video, to make the world a better place. Even Christian things that we could do, like being involved in parachurch organizations and Christian unions and mission agencies and blogs and books and conferences and camps, all of those things can be good. And I'm not knocking them. I've actually spent the best part of a month this term organizing a conference. And we as a church have invested bucket loads of sweat and tears to make our new 11 to 18s camp a reality. And it's important and good. But in the end, those things only matter if they end up serving the core business of growing and establishing local churches. hope we believe that. hope that's why we're involved in those things if we are. Because it's only the local church, the regular gathering of Christians to meet their saviour in his word that demonstrates to the world the reality that will last into eternity. And that's why if you're not already, I want to persuade you this morning that there is nothing better that you can do with your life than be a fully committed, sold out, rock solid believer in the local church. And if you're a parent, that you train your children to be the same. That the one legacy they take away from you is not an A in maths or passing the 11 plus or whatever it is. But a lifelong love and understanding of the local church.
And if you are here physically in church this morning and you're not sure that you are somebody who has turned to the Lord Jesus, then can I encourage you this morning to make this the morning that you do. It's great that you're here physically. But what matters is that you are here physically at the end when Jesus gathers his people to himself. And the only way you can make sure of that is by turning to Jesus now, <clears throat> by trusting him as your Lord and Savior. And if you've never asked God to do that for you this morning, then ask him to do it. Ask God to make you part of his church by turning to Christ and remaining true to him, as Luke says, with all of your heart. And if you need help without ask me, ask Nathan, ask somebody who's uh, sitting near you to help you. So that's the first thing then we learn from the church in Antioch. The church needs to understand itself. The second thing we learn from the church is that it is, in fact, the only genuinely multicultural entity on earth. The church is the only genuinely multicultural entity on earth. See, look back at verse 23. What did Barnabas see when he came to Antioch? He saw, Luke tells us, the grace of God. The uh, Greek doesn't say he saw the evidence of the grace of God. It just says he, he saw the grace of God and rejoiced, verse 23. What was it he saw that made him rejoice? I mean, all he saw was a bunch of people. Well, the answer lies back in verse 20. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Bible study question, what is the most important word in that sentence? I want to suggest it's the word also that is the key. The dispersed Christians didn't stop speaking to Jews, but some of them now started speaking to Greeks also. And so the Gentiles begin to be gathered into the church. And this is what reaches the news of the apostles in Jerusalem and prompts them to send Barnabas in verse 22. And so it might not look anything special, but this is a momentous moment in the Bible story. Because actually, although we have had the conversion of Cornelius in chapter 10, here is the shift from the Jewish mission to the Gentile mission. And again, the roots go back into the Old Testament story. God is the God of all creation. He promised Abraham before Israel even existed that his descendants would be a blessing to many nations. But look how quietly, how simply the shift occurs. These people from Cyprus and Cyrene, uh, these were Greek-speaking Jews. And so what do they do? They do the most natural thing to them. They start speaking to people who speak Greek. And so this Gentile mission gets going. And so what Barnabas saw when he saw the grace of God was the first international church, the first multicultural church, and I want to suggest to you the first genuinely multicultural entity in the history of the world. I want us to be impressed with that this morning. 
See, we may not be that impressed that Jew and Gentile can come together because we tell ourselves that we live in a multicultural society. We live in a society that loves to celebrate diversity and prides itself on its tolerance. We think we live in a society that has put racism behind us and everybody rubs shoulders with everybody else. But I'm not so sure we are or we do. See, the, the idea that we live in a multicultural society is, is kind of thrust upon us with every advert and website, isn't it? But I look around at our society and I don't see much actual coexistence. Do people from diverse backgrounds actually coexist? I mean, where we live, we, we've got loads of Muslims living around us, but I've never been to any of their homes. What I see, actually, is people sticking pretty rigidly to their tribe. The BBC and the bank adverts make it look like we're a multi-ethnic society. But in reality, I don't see many boundaries of culture or age or sex or class crossed, do you? When people gather together, whether it's in the playground or the street or the workplace or some other part of community, I think people tend to relate to people who are like them. And I think we're actually pretty segregated as a society. We kid ourselves that we're multicultural. But the church of Jesus Christ is different. I've told this story in another context, but a, a few years ago, a letter appeared in the Lancaster Guardian contributing to an article the previous week, a question, is there a divide between students and the city? Now, student Danny Bland summed up the problem like this. This is his letter. He said, there should probably be some sort of scheme to get us all into the same place a bit more. I can imagine a big friendly restaurant where students can go and work and families can go out for a meal, kids can play, elderly people can meet up. But I doubt anybody would speak to each other even if they were in the same place. Now, I'm not a big letter writer to papers, but I wrote back and I said, Dear sir, there is a place like this. It's called the Ordinary Local Church, and you are welcome to come to us at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings. They didn't publish my letter, sadly. But my point is that that is the place. And I think only the church is a truly multicultural community. Because it's only the gospel that genuinely breaks the barriers and transcends any other identity we have, whether it's race or culture, which is actually much stronger than the concept of race or sex or class or education or politics. Now, what does this mean in practice? It means that I get very sad when people say to me, as they have a number of times, I'm leaving this church because there is nobody like me. You ever heard that? I'm leaving this church because there is no one my age. I'm leaving this church because there is no one with the same age of children as my children. There's no one with the same interests as me. There's no one I can relate to. And when I hear that, I want to say, yes, that is the whole point of church. The whole purpose of church is not to bring together a bunch of people like you with common interests. The whole point of church is actually to bring together natural enemies, people with nothing in common, but now belong to the family of Jesus Christ. 
And this is what Paul means when he says in the passage from Ephesians at the bottom of the sheet that the church displays the manifold wisdom of God. As the barriers are broken down by the gospel. And you see a two-year-old relating to an 80-year-old. You see a man relating to a woman. You see people from different cultures actually in the same family. You see something that is utterly beautiful and completely unique. See, I think our society thinks it's cracked racism. But I don't think it actually has. You know what the opposite of racism is in the Bible? Our society thinks the opposite of racism is tolerance or, or a kind of celebration of diversity. In the Bible, you, do you know what the opposite of racism is? The opposite of racism in the Bible is hospitality. Because xenophobia is the fear of strangers, written with an X if you're taking notes. Xenophilia is the love of strangers, and it's the word the Bible uses for hospitality. Not just tolerating those who are different, not just celebrating diversity by putting a load of different faces on a website. Actually welcoming strangers into your life, into your home. The opposite of racism is not tolerance, it is hospitality. And I think the world has got nothing like it. So, two lessons from the church in Antioch. Firstly, and they're big lessons, aren't they? We're going to have to go away and do some thinking about this, aren't we? Firstly, a sense of its own identity. Secondly, the only multicultural entity on the face of the earth. And then the third thing we learn from the church is how the church grows. What does this fledgling, organically created gathering of believers now need to flourish and persevere? Well, Barnabas knows the answer. He needs, it needs teaching. He needs competent, godly leaders to teach it. We're told that when he arrives in verse 23, he got stuck in. He encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Luke points out that he is qualified to do this by his character as well as his skills. His name even means son of encouragement. And the result of this work of active encouragement by a man of character, verse 24, a great number of people were brought to the Lord. The church grows. It grows as it does its mission, as it reaches out. But that is not where Barnabas leaves it. He doesn't say, well, jobs are good and I'm heading back to Jerusalem. No, because the church grows, there is now more to do. More people in church means more work to be done which is why Barnabas now goes and gets some help, verse 25. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. Barnabas, who is always presented by Luke as a brilliant team player, now leaves the church, and he does the, I think it's a 130-mile journey or something to Tarsus, goes and looks for Saul and recruits him onto his team. And the combined ministry of Barnabas and Saul, who will become Paul, of course, is narrated in a short sentence in verse 25. Have a look at verse 25. It's very powerful. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers 
of people. There it is. There is the most important thing we need to know about church growth and church leadership. That the way God grows his church is through godly leaders teaching the word, multiplying themselves as the church grows, and doing it over a long period of time. And again, just like the nature of the church itself, it's stunningly simple, but it is actually quite hard to believe. It's hard to believe that this is what the church needs. Because there will always be things that appear more urgent and compete for the leader's time. A lesson we've learned before from chapter 6 in the past. There will always be those who want the church leader to be something else. To be a social worker, problem solver, a personal counsellor, an event organiser. Any number of things. But the task that God has given the church leader is the one that Paul describes in Acts 20 as teaching the whole church the counsel of God. Or the one he describes in Ephesians 4 as equipping the church with the word so the word can then reverberate through the church through the ministry of every member. Of course, there is more to Bible teaching, sorry, there is more to church leadership than Bible teaching. Things do need to be organized, programs worked out, trellises built and managed so that the whole vine can grow, so that everybody can flourish. But the thing that will drive that is the word of God. And it's when the word of God is unleashed, when the church is fed and nurtured and saturated with the words of God, that God grows his church his way. Look at what uh, this pastor says. He says, it's God's word that gives life. A good pastor believes this, trusts this, and centers his ministry on this fact. But what does the word do? Well, there are two types of growth that come as a result of all this teaching. There is this growth outwards that Luke keeps on stressing. Luke is very concerned with numbers in the book of Acts, verse 26, uh, sorry, uh, verse 25, um, great numbers of people. There is a growth outwards, but don't miss that little comment in verse 26 as well. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. That is more than an interesting historical note. In the context of growing hostility towards Christians that comes out of the next chapter, this tells us that they had a growing sense of identity as those who belonged to Christ and who unashamedly witnessed to Christ in their world. It's a clue to their growing maturity as well as numbers. And that sense of identity and deepening maturity comes out very practically in our final section. God's power gathers his people, thirdly, for gospel partnership. We'll look at this briefly. Verse 27, during this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Now Luke ends this section with a brief report of a famine relief effort being launched by the church in Antioch 
for the Christians back in Judea. So there is this kind of a toing and froing. The, the uh, church was planted by people from Judea. The church in Antioch now sends help back. And so this is the beginning of a deep, practical gospel partnership. Notice three things about it. Firstly, it's deep. Notice the word brothers in verse 29. It's a term for close family members. The Greek word includes sisters as well. This is how the church in Antioch, made up of Jews and Gentiles in the northern province of the Roman Empire, now help a bunch of impoverished Jews they have never met back in Jerusalem. It's deep, isn't it? They understand that when they turned to Christ, they didn't just join a club or a movement. They became part of a global family. And now they care about the welfare and suffering of Christians in other parts of the world as deeply as their own. Secondly, it's very practical, isn't it? This daughter church in Antioch that has benefited spiritually from the mother church in Jerusalem did not hesitate to repay the debt by means of material support so the Christians can keep going. They don't just send a nice letter wishing them well. They send hard-earned cash so they can buy food. It's practical. This is why we've just given away a, a substantial chunk of our gift day giving to our partner church in Morecambe because they needed it more than we did. And this is why if you get involved in church planting, it is costly and long-term. It's much easier just to send a regular donation to a missionary agency or a Christian relief fund every year. But it's more costly, isn't it? And better, I think, to support actual churches in different parts of the world. This is gospel partnership, I think, that we see here. It's deep and it's practical. But the third thing we need to see is that it, this is just the beginning of a gospel partnership. A gospel partnership that I think actually changed our world. So the story of this little church in Antioch continues, and I want to give you a brief uh, preview of it before we finish. In chapter 12, there's a, a bout of terrible persecution. It's a brilliant story. It ends with Herod being eaten by worms and dying. Most people die and then they're eaten by worms. Herod gets eaten by worms and die. Ask a medic later, and they'll tell you some horrid truths about that. Well, that's a great story. We'll have to wait for another time. But then Luke comes back in 1225, if you just look there, and he resumes the account of Saul and Barnabas. They take their financial gift to Jerusalem, return to Antioch, now adding Mark to their team. And look what happens. Pick it up at the beginning of chapter 13. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, Niger, Lucius of Serene, Manian, and Saul. The team has grown. While they were worshipping the Lord, the word there just means serving, they were serving, they were doing ministry. While they were doing that, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Now just look on the map and see what they do. Chapter 13 describes their outward journey. They head to the coast to Seleucia, sail to Cyprus, and then from Cyprus to Perga, and then Pisidian Antioch, different Antioch, and then on to Iconian, Lystra, and Derby. I always want to say Derby, but I think it's Derby. And what are they doing? Chapter 13, verse 5, they're proclaiming the word. So by 1349, Paul can say, Luke can say the word has spread throughout the whole region. 
There's the outward journey, moving around, preaching, reaching the unreached. But then we pick it up in 1421. And have a look at this. They go back, repeat the journey on their way home. They preach the good news in Derby, won a large number of disciples. Then they return to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthen the disciples, encourage them to remain true in the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Now listen to this, 1423, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they put their trust. See what has happened? It's almost a throwaway line, but did you see it? 1423, that casual mention of church again. Where do these churches spring from? They came from the preaching of the gospel. And that's what happens. As the gospel goes out and people turn to Jesus, Jesus' people want to meet together. And so this has been a church-planting, church-forming mission. And so here, I think, is a very practical and profound insight for us, Morland's church family. How does this region get reached for Christ? Through ordinary churches taking the initiative for the mission of Jesus. That's what this little church in Antioch did. They didn't just wait around, waiting for the cavalry to come. They got on. They realized that if the Roman world was going to be reached for Christ, they were going to have to do it. And so they understood the absolute authority of the local church as God's outpost on earth. They didn't form some great parachurch entity. Local churches did it. And they sent their best. The senior pastor... The most experienced missionary to the Gentile, Paul, the most astute theologian alive at that time. They send their best, most gifted in this act of generosity. The Greek word in 13.3 is a strong word for release. They released them, set them loose. And so if we want to reach our little region for Christ, we'll need to do the same. If we want to reach Blackpool and Barrow, if you want to see people in Whitehaven and Walney and Windermere bowing the knee to Jesus, if you want to see people in Penrith and Pendle and Penwaltham hear about Christ, we will have to send and give and partner with other like-minded churches so that churches are planted and established in those areas. And that is going to be costly. And it's going to be long-term but that is how God turns his world upside down. God's power gathers his people for gospel partnership. Now, before we conclude, I'm just going to stop speaking for a minute because I think we've covered a lot of ground, lots of things going on in this passage. And I want to give you a moment just to jot down perhaps something new that you've not seen before or perhaps something you've been reminded of. Or perhaps one thing that you'd like to go away and think a little bit more about, and then we'll conclude very, very briefly. Something new, something you've been reminded of, something you want to go and think or pray or do or talk about a little bit further. Well, hopefully uh, you've written something down.
And I want to conclude by uh, going back to that uh, Mission Impossible film, which I think is the, maybe the sixth or the seventh in the series. And uh, you may know, or the franchise, as they call them, uh, you may know that there's always a line in those films which goes back to the TV series from way back, where the hero is, is given a message from a superior. And... It's usually on a tape recorder that then self-destructs. And you know the message. It's your mission, should you choose to accept it, is. Your mission, should you choose to accept it. The problem is uh, Christians don't get to choose the mission. If you have met Jesus in his word and you now meet Jesus' people in his church, you are part of it whether you choose it or not. Because this is why Jesus died. He died to create the church, to bring us into his kingdom. And he sends his spirit so that we might take the message of salvation to the ends of the earth. And so the church is the result of the mission because here is the gathering that anticipates the end of the world. All people need to do is come in here and they see it. See the grace of God, the only multicultural society on earth. But it's also the means to the mission, because Jesus has in fact given us the task to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And he now calls each one of us to be part of it, to lift high, as we'll sing in a moment, the message of the cross, to do this not on our own, but together. So can I ask you, then to make the best decision of your life and make this beautiful, brilliant church the thing that your life is about. And together, like the men and women in the book of Acts, this is how God turns the world upside down. Let's pray that that will be the case for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus died on the cross so our sins can be forgiven by dealing with the wrath that we so richly deserve. Thank you that as we turn to Jesus in repentance and faith, you bring us into your family. You make us part of the people you are gathering to be with you for eternity. Thank you that it's your desire and plan that the gospel be preached to all nations, that all Christians and churches are to be about this task by holding the cross up to a dying world, salvation for all who believe. We pray that you'd forgive us for our half-heartedness, our fear, our love of comfort. And we pray that you would help us as a church to make your mission our priority and for each one of us the goal and joy of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.